Titus chapter 1 is where we'll turn this morning and continuing a discussion we had last week or last two weeks ago on the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers, looking as we did a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a corresponding passage in Titus chapter 1, a little bit different situation, which I'll explain in just a moment uh, there in Titus chapter 1, but Paul has a similar word to another trusted co-worker that, that, of, named Titus, of course, here in, in, um, in the letter to Titus. So beginning at verse 5, let me just read this passage first and then we'll look at it. T- Titus 1 and verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious, For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. Titus was left in Crete, by Paul after that first Roman imprisonment, you, one of the best, well, I, I should couch my terms a little bit. One of the advantages of, of many Bibles is the maps in the back. And you think, oh, the maps, who, who even does all that? Well, it's helpful to, to see these things and to see these different places. Again, the Bible is a book of history. It's not a made up, fanciful book, un, unhinged, un, unconnected to other historical, you know, extra biblical events or places. And so the geography that the scripture teaches is a real geography. You can go to the map and you maps now and you can see these different places. Just quickly rehearsing because we don't have much time to, to uh, dilate, if you don't mind, on this subject. Paul was in Rome for his first Roman imprisonment. He was there for two years in house arrest. That's how Acts 28 ends. He was in house, under house arrest, but he had the opportunity to share the gospel. So many people were coming and going. Even if you remember, Onesimus came from Colossae and brought news of the church in Colossae and how uh, Paul then wrote a letter to them. And anyway, he's in Rome, probably was released. And this is, this is a, sub, a, a subjective kind of piecing together some things, some statements of scripture. But he went from Rome down to Crete. Crete is an island, an island nation in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, a place where Paul had passed through on his way to Rome back, you know, two or three years ago before this time, had some some opportunity to preach the gospel perhaps there. And yet, was he able to establish churches during this time? We don't know. But we do know, by the way, back in Acts 2, that among those folks gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost or First Fruits, there were some Cretans there. Not Cretans like those little nasty creatures, but Cretan, people from Crete. And so maybe they brought the gospel back. This is now, what, 30 years afterwards, roughly. And are churches going on? Yes. But there's, there are some things that need to be addressed in these churches if they had been established decades before or maybe just more recently, two, three, four years ago. Uh, there, there are some things that need to be addressed. Anyway, Paul leaves Titus in Crete. How did Titus meet up with Paul? Did he meet up with Paul in Rome? I don't know. We don't know all that history, but we do know that Paul left Titus in Crete. More about Titus, we could talk about him another time, but that's that's not necessary at this point. Probably he went back to Ephesus, or maybe if not Ephesus, Miletus. Remember in Acts 20, he said, hey, elders from Ephesus, come down and meet me and talk to you. 
he said at that point he wouldn't ever go back to Ephesus. They wouldn't ever see his face. But it seems like if you look back at First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I think it is, where Paul says, hey, I left you in Ephesus as I was going on into Macedonia. Paul is going on into Macedonia uh, from leaving Titus in Crete and, and Timothy in Ephesus. Also, 100 miles to the east of Ephesus is Colossae. He said, remember Philemon? Philemon, prepare a place for me because I intend to be handed over to you or entrusted to you. So maybe he made a side trip over to Colossae. He said he would. I don't know if he did or not. But his goal was to get back to Macedonia. Macedonia is the north part of that Aegean Sea and especially to get to the city of Philippi. Philippi was one church that was so dear to his heart the, probably the only church that he was willing to receive offerings from. He says other, other people know. Corinth really got in, in hot water. He got in hot water in terms of Corinth because he wouldn't accept gifts from them. But Philippi was so kind and, and Paul received it. He wanted to go and thank them personally. And so maybe he went up to Philippi. After that, he said to Titus in chapter 3, verse 10, I think it is, hey, come to me in Nicopolis for I intend to spend the winter there. Kind of a nice Mediterranean seaside place to do that. Uh, when did he do that? I don't know. Uh, what, what's the timetable? I don't know. When he is at the, at the end of 2 Timothy, he's back in Rome, of course, second Roman imprisonment, not going to be released from there except without his head. He's going to die in, in Rome. But he probably, and this is, this is kind of putting things together, he was probably um, kidnapped is probably the wrong term, but he was arrested, surprised by things, kind of like William Tyndale, perhaps you can look at his history but he was taken and uh, arrested and just left his stuff he left his his uh, cloak he left parchments especially the the he left the, some scrolls and especially the parchments he left there he said timothy go up there and get that and bring it to me in rome so probably he was there taken from troas back to rome and uh, executed uh, very very soon thereafter in any event this is real history. Paul is, says, I left you in Crete. I was on my way into Macedonia, but you have a job to do, Titus. That is to serve the churches there in, on the island of Crete. Crete was known for its cities and uh, had several different cities around there. Fair Havens was one. That's where Paul uh, traveled through uh, during uh, his voyage to Rome that first time. But he's, he noticed in the course of that there, there's something wrong with these churches. They look good, but they need something. There's something that remains, something that is lacking in the, the livelihood and the, the lifeblood of these churches, and that is namely that they need elders, they need pastors, they need overseers. And they need not just one, they need multiple ones. They have uh, been organized and they are meeting together, but they need shepherds. They need those who are not more special than, than the rest of the people, but those who are a little bit farther advanced in the faith. Again, the question is, were there believers from the time of Pentecost? Did they go back to Crete? Did they establish churches at that time? In which case, thirty year, 25 at least, 25 years up to 30 years has passed, and now they still have a need of pastors, shepherds, elders in these churches. So Paul says to Titus, you be careful to establish or appoint these people, and you be careful to uh, select the right people, not just, oh, we have a need, so let's get any breathing body that is mobile and upright and can, can put two, uh, maybe just one sentence, one, excuse me, one word together, kind of, and we can, okay, he can enunciate. And so, no, you need to be careful who you put in positions of care and authority and leadership in the church. So he says, and spends a long time here, 
three or four verses on the qualifications or the characteristics of these elders, just as Paul had directed them. Now, some of these terms we looked at in relation to 1 Timothy 3. So in that case, I'm just going to skip over them. I'm going to try to skip over them anyway, and let uh, you go back to, to look at our uh, study from 1 Timothy chapter 3. But here it says, namely, what kind of people? Namely, these ones. If any man is beyond reproach. Beyond reproach has this idea, similar to the term we, use, we saw back in 1 Timothy 3, but different, actually. Same idea, but different word. And the, this has the idea of unable to be called into question. One who is without accusation, or if any kind of serious charges could be brought against them, well, they're unfounded. They're just made up. We, we know, we all know that, that whatever that person is accusing the, this man of, it's not, there's no basis to it. There's no, uh, there's no legitimacy behind it. it it's hearsay. It's, it's trying to stir up trouble, but there's nothing, nothing to it. Having that uh, affirmation about this man is so powerful. And you think, well, what, what other people were accused? Jesus was accused. So many times in the Gospels, Jesus is accused. He was not without accusation. But time and time again, we saw the accusations against him are totally unfounded, contrary to God's word, obviously de- uh, de- desired or de- de- designed to undercut the authority, the identity of Christ. And, and always, Jesus came out on top, unscathed, holy, proved righteous. We see another man, a lot of times accused, Actually, let me back up one time. Remember when Paul had, or excuse me, Jesus had his trials before Pilate and Herod, and each time, multiple times in that context of Luke twenty-two, that he and twenty-three, that Jesus was. I find, Pilate said, "I find no fault in him. These accusations are unfounded. I'm a, I'll, I'll flog him and release him because obviously you guys are jealous of all this." Even so. Christ was exonerated. He was declared innocent by Pilate, by Herod even, because he sent him back to Paul, or to Pilate. Uh, anyway, Paul was another one who was accused. The whole of Acts 21 to the end of the, chap- end of the book, rather, is accusations against him, which are unfounded. And time and time again, we see, you know, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. And even when he gets to Caesar, oh, he was dismissed. He was uh, not executed at that time. He was excused and the charges were dropped. So, my point is, righteous, godly people can be accused of wrongdoing, but we see that there's no basis to it. There's no uh, substance. There's no reasonable uh, charge against them. They have a good reputation. They're not perfect. They're not sinless and, and you know, having attained wonderful uh, uh, holiness. No, but they're, they're far down the road and, and they're toward righteousness, toward godliness. And this is the kind of people, the kind of men we need in this leadership position. The husband of one wife, uh, we looked at last time, but I'm going to say one, uh, kind of expand a little bit on one word because we already saw it here. If any, actually it's not in the text, I don't think. If any man is beyond reproach, that word man is not in the text. It just says if anyone is. But here it says a man. I mentioned it last time in relation to marriage and so forth, but uh, leadership in the church and even leadership in not the church, but in Israel, the nation Israel is masculine. It is male. A God, of course, is presented in a masculine imagery. He is God the Father. He is a righteous warrior. Jesus Christ was born a, a how does the scripture say? A child is born, a son is given, right? He is that king. He's the descendant of David. He will rule on David's throne. Jesus is male. Most of the prophets, not all, but most of the prophets of Israel were male. The 12 apostles, disciples were male. The husband, scripture says, is the head of the wife. The father is leader of the home, whether the 
whether there are children in the home or not, the husband, the man is the leader, the, the, uh, the caretaker of the home. Not that the woman can't do these works, there, there's a combination, but somebody has to be uh, responsible. I was going to say in charge, but that really undercuts the idea. It's responsible before the Lord. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to delegate that to the woman? Wait a minute. That's what happened in the garden, right? Adam delegated authority, responsibility to uphold God's word to Eve, and you see disaster that entered in relation to that. Now, male and female are obviously both created in the image of God. Both male and female share that dominion mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And yet there are special roles and functions in society that, must, that, are, that vary based on male or female. And yet you think, well, wait a minute, Galatians 3 and verse 28, you know this verse off the top of your head? This is the verse that, that so many people would quote and say, well, obviously, see, this is, this is different. Galatians 3, 28, there is, you have to get these two terms in mind, a complementary, complementarian view of the male and female distinction, and there's an egalitarian, which comes from more of a French idea, which is, comes from Latin, which is equal. There's no, no distinction between a male and female. It's egalitarian. It's equal. Well, Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither, there's no male and female. If you're all one in Christ Jesus, just all get along and they'll be happy. Well, obviously, yes. And notice in verse, 12, verse 29, if you belong to Christ and you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. There is no distinction. Anybody can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew or Greek, and you think, what? We don't, that doesn't have the same gravitas as you would have in the first century. The Greeks can be saved too, like us, right? Most of us, I think, probably are Gentile. But yes, Greeks can be saved just as well as Jews. What about slaves and free men? Yes, even societal distinctions of, of uh, hierarchy, obvious hierarchy, male and female. We saw also in relation to that, you know, another statement, Colossians 3 that there is no Jew or Gentile, no circumcised, uncircumcised, no barbarian or uh, Scythian. Let's see, verse 11, Colossians 3, 11. Uh, slave and free man, Christ is in all. Christ is all and in all. The point is, anybody can come to faith in the Lord Jesus. There is no distinction between these different things. But if you read, especially in Colossians 3, and we did because we just studied Colossians, Paul specifically addresses women, wives, they have this particular role or function in their, in their family. Husbands, men, you have this, this particular function. Wait a minute, if there's no distinction now between male and female, then do we even need to use the terms husband and wife anymore? Can it just be spouse A and spouse B? Well, even th that's kind of hierarchical. Spouse one, spouse two. No, even that's kind of... Do you see how ridiculous it can become? How quickly? It's husband and wife. And the husband is responsible before the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife and the wives be subject to your husbands. What about slaves and free men? or slaves and masters. There's no distinction, right? Paul has a word. Slaves, you obey your earthly masters. Masters don't embitter or don't uh, abuse your slaves. The point is, yes, there's equality before the Lord, but there's also specificity of function and role in our lives. And so we can see that, that regardless of ethnicity, religion, uh, sex, social status, all have access to the promises of God through Abraham and the Spirit and so forth, but there are roles that remain in place. We see this even in the Godhead, and much, could be more, much more could be said about that. Many objections we could, we could refer to about uh, what about in 1 Timothy 2, or what about 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and so forth. We can talk about that another time. But the point is, leadership in this case is male. The husband 
is of one wife, a man is about beyond reproach, and so forth. Uh, having faithful children, whoops, excuse me, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion, rebellious, excuse me. This is similar to what Paul said back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in that he said the husband or the man ought to manage his own household well. This is verses 4 and 5. Leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Here he puts it a little bit differently. And maybe your translation has a, has a read, as I said, having faithful children. Maybe your translation has having believing children. I think if you were to have an ESV or a New American Standard or even an NIV, it would talk about those who having believing or uh, saved children. Other translations, let's see, the Legacy Standard Bible, obviously, uh, King James and New King James have, and several others, have faithful children. This word translated either believing or faithful can be translated both ways. The idea is actively believing in something, trusting in something, having a faith in a particular person or content, or being more, in a, in a passive sense, faithful, trustworthy, one who does what he says he's going to do, one who is uh, responsible, one who is accountable, one who is obedient, and has the idea then of being in line with what the Father says. Here, I, I would favor, as they have translated here, having faithful children. One of the questions is, as we addressed it somewhat last time in First Timothy 3, does a husband, excuse me, does a potential elder pastor overseer, A, have to be married? Well, it assumes if he's married, it assumes that he is married, because that's the normal situation of life. Not to say that there aren't exceptions, but wait a minute, didn't Paul himself say it's better not to marry? What about Timothy? Was he married? Titus, was he married? He's going all these different places. Peter, we know he is, because he took his wife along on some journeys. But he... Paul extols the virtues of single living for the glory of God, undivided attention to the Lord and all these things. Wait a minute, if he extols the virtues of single living, why does he say that husbands here, or excuse me, elders, uh, should be in the context of, of a, a wife and children? Well, because that's the, the typical normal situation of life. It's not to say that those who are single are, are weird and abnormal. It's just to say that typically the, the there's a, there's a proverb, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes all the other blessings that God provides, especially grandchildren. You all know this if you have grandchildren. But not that children aren't good. But having faithful children, he says, having those who are in the home that you care for. If you have children, you need to be careful to train them and raise them up. Be careful how you um, manage, lead your household. First Timothy 3, 4, leading his own household well having his children in submission with all dignity. Here he says these are faithful children. And I guess the other question is, if you have children, do they have to have a profession of faith? If, for example, hey, pastor so-and-so just, and his wife just received a new little baby. Okay, he can't be a pastor for three, four, five, ten years because we don't know about that child's salvation. That'd be kind of difficult. I mean, and that's a logical extension of these things. But these are qualifications. These are characteristics. These are uh, overall measures of the holiness, the godliness, the spiritual maturity of the man. What do we see in his family? How is he caring for his wife? How is he caring for his children? That they aren't accused of dissipation or rebellious. This is really the contrast, not the same word, but a related word, 
beyond reproach, beyond accusation. Here they have an accusation. Well, they shouldn't have, right? They were not accused of this way, not to have any kind of charge of dissipation. Dissipation is a really strong term. It has to do with a debauchery. It has, essentially, it's extreme indulgence, just giving totally into the flesh. As we read First John 2, uh, 15 and 16, the love of the flesh, uh, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. They just, yeah, that's, that's my stuff. That's what I'm into. No, children of elders cannot be in that way, not recklessly living. Same word is used in an adverbial sense in relation to the prodigal son. Whoa, the prodigal son is not a, a character study in God's holiness and how children ought to conduct themselves. No, it's the exact opposite. He was senseless, just doing stupid stuff. I mean, sin kind of makes you stupid, and that's what he did. And children of elders should not be that way, not given to dissipation, not living uh, without self-control, or how to say, living with self-control. Also, another characteristic of the children is that they're not rebellious. They're not insubordinate. They're not undisciplined. doesn't mean they make, don't make any noises. They're, they're perfectly saintly. They have a little halo comes down on the head when they're in the church meeting, right? They're just totally silent. No, but there is a, a process of growth, and they do want to listen to the parents, that they are pliable, not stiff-necked and rebellious as we can be, even as adults sometimes. We see that in Israel so much, being idolaters and going after their own desires. But these are ones who are sensitive to their father's instruction, those who have the, the uh, willingness to submit. We see later, verse 10 in chapter 1, Titus, about those who are uh, disobedient, those who rebel against God's uh, word and God's commandment. So that should not be characteristic of the children of, of pastors, elders, overseers. Verse 7 uses a different term. Remember back in verse 5, he said the elders, appoint elders in every city. Now he uses a different term, and he uses it in the singular. So that means one. used to be elders, plural. Now it's the overseer. But he uses it in a generic, singular sense, if you don't mind the grammatical mumbo-jumbo. He's, he's talking about the same group of guys, but now he's focusing, look, this guy, any guy that comes into this group, this guy must be beyond reproach. Repeats that same term from verse 6. Must be beyond reproach. But he introduces another term, again, as God's steward, one who is managing not his own stuff. This isn't my church. This isn't anybody's church. It's God's church. He entrusts it to the care of godly men. So it is that idea of stewardship and recognizing not just the, the building. I mean, good grief, the building can come go. It's the people, right? God's stewardship is the people that God has entrusted to the care of these, these men. And that is the perspective. We are then authorized as God's steward. We're exercising God's authority, not coming in with our own authority, not our own ideas. We are representing Christ in the administration of this, of this congregation. And so recognizing that God's stewardship is so powerful. So, and we meant, it was mentioned last time, last week about Second Peter uh, 3, that we are accountable before God. We have a stewardship before God to fulfill for his sake. He goes on, though, and has three or four or five uh, knots. Not knots like Boy Scout knots, but not as in don't be like this, don't be like this, don't be like this. He says not self-willed. This is a new term. It's not in 1 Timothy 3 or 1 Peter 5. This is a term that has to do with, in, in, without the negative, without the don't be like this, one who is self-willed is selfish, self-pleasing. He is ungracious toward other people, other people's opinions, especially, excuse me, 
I'm speaking or I have the right idea. You don't even know what you're talking about kind of thing. They're arrogant. They're overbearing. They're just, they play this so harshly and so rudely. They have, they, they have a self-confidence about them that is not, not appropriate, not helpful, not advancing the, the livelihood of certainly the pastoral team, but also the whole congregation. It's all about them. Peace and unity, well, yeah, it'd be peace and unity if you just agree with me kind of thing. Uh, No, it's not uh, how how we see elsewhere for uh, Philippians 2, that we have a party spirit or uh, being so much intent on empty glory. Um, It's not that. No arrogance. It's okay to have opinions, but hey, can you recognize that's an opinion? Even in in terms of biblical interpretation, can you realize that that is, this is a contested text or or a doctrine. Can we work together? Can we somehow have a measurement of agreement on what we know to be true, what is obviously true from the scripture? But then how does that, you know, some of these other things that need to come in, how can we work together in this way? One who is not self-willed is easily entreated. You can talk to this person. They're approachable. They are willing to learn from others. They're willing to evaluate their own lives. They are willing to work in a team uh, situation. Again, we're not looking for one pastor of a local church. We're looking for multiple godly pastor, elder, overseers for this church and other churches as well. Not self-willed. He says not quick-tempered. Not easily provoked anger. This word is only used this one time in all of Scripture, well, in all of first, all in the New Testament anyway, and it is has the idea of some kind of a wrath that that just bubbles up and is evident in so many different ways, words and countenance and and attitudes and the way that they approach problems and and problem people, which are even worse. But no, this is uh, peaceable, like we saw in First Timothy three and verse three. This guy's peaceable. So much seeking what is just, let's settle down. Let's, let's love one another. Love is able to resolve these issues that we have with one, with one another. A quick-tempered person is unstable. So much given toward hostility. So much, you know, oh, you want to you wanna do this right now? I mean, ready to drop down and, and go for it. No, that's not how these elders ought to be. Kind and, and not quick-tempered. He goes on, he says, not addicted to wine. We saw that. We looked at that back in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. Uh, also, the next term, not pugnacious, uh, which has to do with you know, fisticuffs, fighting, violence. We saw that back in 1 Timothy 3, 3. But this next one, not fond of this dishonest gain. We saw a similar term about, uh, in also 1 Timothy 3, 3, free from the love of money. And here it, has, it goes on a little bit farther and says, not fond of dishonest gain. Not one who is chasing after material gain, not one who is chasing after silver, not one who is, uh, one person said, preying upon the generosity of his fold or the flock and say, oh, you're a generous sort. You know, I really have this need or, you know, I wish that you'd give, you know, I, I was hoping for a new whatever and, and by, you're dropping hints, kind of like my Christmas list, uh, you know, just hints, just, you know, whatever. There is contentment. They are not fond or, or driven toward especially the gain that become, or that comes dishonestly or shamefully in, in the sense of peddling the word of God. First Corinthians 2 and verse 17 says, you know, there are so many itching ears out there. Let me just tickle your itching ears a little bit and see what, what kind of good stuff you'll give back to me. No, be faithful. Just preach the word. Second Timothy 4, 2, preach the word in season, out of season. This time would come when men and people will rise up wanting their ears to be tickled, but you uh, fulfill your ministry. 
you be careful to do that. Avoid the temptations of money. Don't be after this dishonest gain. Now he lists a bunch of positive characteristics. And again, some of these we've already seen in 1 Timothy 3, the first one for sure. Uh, not, or excuse me, but hospitable. One who's generous, open-hearted, open-handed to other people. Loving what is good. This is a new term in, in Titus 1, verse 8. This is one who is uh, passionate, not just, you know, I like, I like good things. No, passionate for what is good. Not just the expensive luxury items, you know, one brand of car over another, but what is good and what is uh, uh, approved before God. What is uh, that which is wholesome, that which is acceptable to God, even what is devoted to, uh, excuse me, what is de- devoted to what is good and right before God, not given to whimsical opinions or decisions, uh, trying to find out, you know, hey, you know, if we do this, we'll get more people. Or, ah, this is the easy way. Let's just do it this way. Or, you know, anything like that. No, we're committed to do what is good and right before God. We are pursuing that which is virtuous, that which is even beautiful, that which is beneficial, loving these things, loving them, just delighting in them, rejoicing in the good gifts that God has given, realizing God has given them to us. Let's be thankful to him. Next term talks about being sensible. We saw that First Timothy 3 and verse 2. <clears throat> sensible. Next word, um, righteous here. Upright uh, has to do with personal dealings with other people or interpersonal relationships, that they do what is right, they do what is fair, they do what is just, uh, something that is impartial. We're not, you know, favoring these people over here that, you know, they have the money, they have the whatever, but these people over there don't. So we're going to make sure we give preference to these and the other people, they'll just have to manage them their own selves. No, a just, uh, holy, righteous person, righteous person here, holy is, holy is next, is one who conforms to the standards, will, and character of God. Wow. Oh, no small task, and yet something that we must strive toward. I haven't mentioned it yet, but I should. These characteristics should be true of all Christians, yes? They must be true of all elders. Every Christian should be just, fair, righteous in this way. But elders must be this way, and it goes with all the other ones as well. Next term is holy. Holy or a devout, you know, not walking around in a, in a hallowed situation, but in their demeanor, in their words, in their, in their uh, observation, their obedience to the Lord. They are holy. They are devoted to God. They walk in the, in the presence of God. They hold him in high regard. That affects their speech. That affects their desires. That affects what they do on their computers or their personal devices. It affects what they do in terms of, of relating with other people. Trying to live a holy, God-centered life. Job 1 talks about Job, who is an upright, just, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. Wow. His relationship to other people, just and upright, but also fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Morally, before God, he is just a, a fantastic fella that then enters into this horrible situation. And yet, it's a tremendous situation. What a blessed situation Job was in to see the sovereignty, the good, loving character of God present even in his, his life. We'll see that in a little bit. But holiness is this idea of being intentionally living for God's glory judging and proving what the perfect, what the will of God is, that which is perfect, acceptable, and holy. Titus 1 and verse 9 ought to be true of every Christian, right? This idea of teaching, but it must be true of the elders. They must be these men who are, did I do all these words? I guess I did. 
Go back. Self, oh, self-controlled. I forgot that one. Self-controlled. And that is, it's not found in First Timothy. We see some examples of it, perhaps. But it is somebody who is in charge of himself, which I mean, it's easy for, for us to boss other people. Right? Hey, do this, do this. But can we have charge over ourselves, our passions, our desires? Are we restraining ourselves? Are we putting a lockbox on our heart? Right? Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Be careful. Because from the heart, Jesus says, Matthew 15, from the heart, oh, all manner of wickedness can come. You guard your heart. You guard your mouth. You guard what goes into your eyes. You guard what goes into your ears. You exercise discipline in so many different ways. Do you remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 9 at the very end? He's talking about athletic imagery. He says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I'm going in a specific direction. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Having that self-control, not being vulnerable to Satan's attacks, not one who is then given and open, you know, just become an open target for anybody. They live such an undisciplined life. Oh, any accusation can, can stick to them because look at their lives. It's just a mess. No, these are men who are, are in control of themselves. They're not self-indulgent. They are given to what uh, glorifies God and helps other people. But here in verse 9, just rapidly wrapping this up, that they are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. What kind of word is this? It's not the newspaper. It's not modern verse or poetry. It's not the great classics, you know, classic literature. Holding fast the faithful word. It's not to say that even comics can't illustrate the truths of God's word. Yes, they can. But we, we go to the source, primary sources, first, uh, first reference, the pride of place belongs to scripture. And other stuff are just commentary, just examples, illustrations of what the scripture teaches us. And so holding fast, making sure that this is a basis of our identity, what scripture speaks about in my own life, I'm in Christ, and therefore this is how I ought to be. This is what God commands me to do as a pastor, elder, overseer, and this, and this is what God commands the people to do. But clinging to his word, being devoted to it, being steadfast even in God's word, not being easily shaken. Uh, challenges that we hear against God's word and say, oh, really? I've never thought of it that way. I guess God really is a liar. What? No, that could never be a possibility for a pastor who is devoted to God's word saying, no, let God be found true, though every man a liar. God who cannot lie. Titus 1 verse uh, 3 is it. Uh, God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. God is that one. Where is it? Verse Yeah, verse 2, there it is. God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. There you go. We cling to what God has said. We are loyal to God's word. It's not something that we can be shaken from Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, that we are uh, led astray from, or like shifting, how does it even say? Ephesians 4, 15. Pardon me as I challenge my memory. Ephesians 4, 15 says, no, 14, there it goes, that's why. Uh, no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No, but speaking the truth in love. Speaking what truth? the truth of Scripture, making sure we're careful to do that. All Christians, by the way, are called to do that, speaking the truth in love, especially, particularly, must be the elders. That which is in accordance with the teaching, 
the teaching that has come down from the prophets, come down from the apostles, that which is Christ's own words, Christ himself speaking through the prophets from Abel to Zechariah through the, the apostles, uh, the, you know, the, the 12 and then Paul and uh, maybe lowercase a apostle James and some other, you know, get into the details that way. But we are in accordance with the book. We're teaching the book. What's the result of that? Well, a twofold function. First, to exhort in sound doctrine, to be able to open the scripture and encourage people and say, this is what the Lord says. This is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to believe. This should, this is, should direct your, your uh, conduct in your household. This is how you ought to conduct yourself in the workplace. Exhort in sound doctrine. Command even. Uh, speak these words in, in not just a coming alongside. That's really the root of this idea. But one who says, hey, come alongside me, but let's go before the Lord together in his word. Let's make sure that we are both under the authority of God's word. It's an appeal. It has, you've heard the phrase, uh, that person has gone from uh, preaching to meddling. Oh, they're just getting in my, in, eating my lunch and getting into my business. Well, sometimes we need that. We need to exhort in sound doctrine, not just made up stuff. Sound doctrine has the idea of that which is healthy, that which is uh, life-giving, that which is uh, appropriate to uh, to God, hygienic even is the is the word here. Coming into English, it is sound. It's correct. It's not rotten. It's not diseased. It's not gangrenous, uh, like Paul says about some other false teachers. That that's wicked. That's gangrene. What they're teaching. We teach sound doctrine, but a second aspect or work of elders is to approve those who contradict. There are many who speak against as he says here, the faithful word, the teaching that the apostles and prophets have handed down to us. There are many who stand against it and speak against it. They are those who oppose God's word. And they think, now, uh, let God be found false. Because obviously, so many contradictions in Scripture. I mean, I could just open my book and, and find, well, there's not a contradiction on that page. But, but there are so many in this page, on this book that are just ridiculous and obviously it's, it's not true. There are so many who speak that way or uh, want to malign God's word. These false teachers are all over the place. It's not that we need to go hunting for them. They find us. And, and a lot of times we can give more attention to them, these folks who are not holding fast the faithful word. It's not to say we shouldn't invite or, or listen to uh, challenges, questions, honest, you know, genuine questions against Scripture. Hey, you know, the Scripture says this, but I don't understand how that works, given this other verse. Help me understand. That's a different attitude toward those who say, ah, Scripture, Jesus, what has he even done for us lately? Or um, all, the, all the things you hear about even the male-female thing that we, that we talked about earlier. Many people would oppose and gainsay and outright contradict what is in Scripture. Elders... Everybody needs to have this discernment, but especially elders reprove those. Show them the fault. It's the idea of reprimanding, uh, criticizing sharply, not rudely, not arrogantly, not, oh, you're just a fool for speaking that way, but proving uh, your, your argument is faulty based on this, 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 and this. It is showing that statement, that contradiction to be obviously and winsomely, I guess you'd say, false. It, it's, it's, not, it's winsomely how you approach it, but it is, it's proven wrong by argument, we're, we're saying this, or by evidence uh, that we show these things to be false. It is attacking the problem, 
and not the person. We want to be careful to address the content of their teaching. Not We don't need to humiliate or destroy the, the person. Although there's a time coming, Titus 3 and verse 10 says, if any man is being divisive and just demanding their own, being uh, self-willed, as we saw earlier, reject him. Just reject him after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Not, what he's doing is not Christian. It's not Christ-like. It's not a genuine uh, research into what is true. And just ignore him. Don't give him any more heed. We want to be careful because Paul says in these next several verses in Titus 11 through 16 about false teachers in Crete, how difficult things are in that time. So elders must hold fast the faithful word so that you can exhort and reprove those who contradict. We've seen much about the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers. If you say, what are these terms you're talking about? You have to go back two weeks ago and listen to the to the text then, or maybe it's even longer ago than that. But... We did talk about 1 Timothy 3 two weeks ago. I think next week, say, what about deacons? Well, we have to go back to 1 Timothy 3 and read about what is, what is this office of deacon? What do they do? And how do they interface with the elders, pastors, overseers? Well, that is next time, Lord willing. Our Father in heaven, we were so grateful that you are good and kind to us. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans. We have a relationship with you, but you've also set in order the things that remain. You have provided pastor, elder, overseer, this group of godly men who would shepherd and care for the church. We pray that you would raise up more for this congregation specifically, but others that would hold fast the faithful word, that would not be self-willed, not pugnacious, but hospitable, loving what is good. All the things that we saw today. We know, uh, one person said years ago, that if if there's a... um, a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And so what, how the leadership of the church is, we need to be very careful uh, who we appoint into these positions. Please protect us. Please help us to be the people, the men that you want us to be. But please help the church to be advanced through the lives of these godly men. Please raise up a new generation of young men who would desire the work, this good work that you provided, and would then live circumspectly before you. Thank you again for each one who's here. Thank you for your work in our lives. Please help us now as we uh, conclude and enjoy your, uh, your, you and the fellowship we enjoy through your name. Grant Christ's name. Amen.